From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Recent years have seen a massive change in public perception surrounding UFO sightings. There are videos of UFO sightings all over the internet, but one in particular caught the public's interest in a way no video previously had. Nicknamed the Tic Tac video due to the object being described as white and oval and resembling the famous breath mint, it was spotted by Navy pilots from the USS Nimitz, who, in November 2004, while on a routine training mission off the coast of California, were able to capture the mysterious object on multiple cameras and systems and witness it perform maneuvers previously thought impossible by any known aircraft. The pilots and systems operators who were witness to this event are still baffled by what they saw 17 years later. On this week's episode, I speak with Preston Dennett. Preston began investigating UFOs and the paranormal in 1986, when he discovered that his family, friends, and co-workers were having dramatic, unexplained encounters. He has written more than 20 books and 100 articles about UFOs and the paranormal, and is an investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, the oldest and largest civilian UFO investigation and research organization in the world. On this episode, we talk about the recent wave of UFO videos taken by military personnel and the hotbed of UFO activity near Catalina Island, the site of the 2004 Nimitz video. Just why do UFOs seem to be attracted to this area, and is there something beneath the water? Welcome to this week's mystery, UFOs in Catalina Island, on From the Void. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm so excited to have uh, Preston Dennett on. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So, so this has been a, a passion of mine uh, since childhood, basically. I remember um, as, a, as a young kid watching shows like Sightings and uh, uh, shows like that on TV. And uh, back then, it seemed to be a lot more of a fringe topic. But lately, uh, obviously, as as most people I think are aware it's really hitting the mainstream in a huge way. Uh, so super excited to have you on. So uh, tell the people a little bit about your background and kind of your role in the research of UFOs or UAPs as they're, I guess, called now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. I uh, actually came into this field very skeptical, did not believe in UFOs for a second. <laughs> uh, I was actually kind of repulsed by the subject. I just didn't believe in them. I thought the stars were too far away, and I didn't want to hear it. Uh, but, you know, things happen. I, I was a pretty young guy. I was 21 years old, 1986. Heard a report on the news about a sighting over Alaska uh, by a pilot, actually. And I thought, well, this pilot is throwing his career away by lying or <laughs> misperceiving. Uh, but I remembered my brother. My brother, Mark, said he'd seen a UFO. 
uh, it was about seven years, eight years before this, and I didn't want to hear it back then, but I thought, okay, let's ask him again what he thinks of this pilot and uh, what, he, what he saw. And, and he described this pretty incredible sighting. You know, now I was kind of just barely willing to listen. Uh, and he described how he chased this metallic saucer with a dome in his car with his two friends. I'm like, you're kidding. He's like, no, no, Preston. I mean, we saw it, we had it in view for 15 minutes, 20. It was at treetop level. It was totally silent, zigzagged around, and then it flew off 50 miles across the valley or 20 miles or, you know, whatever. He's like, you don't believe me? Talk to Greg. Talk to Phil. And I did. <laughs> um, that's how it kind of started to roll out for me. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, my brother saw a UFO. It turned out my sister-in-law saw a UFO. She had two friends with her. Uh, I had s- s- a couple of friends who had seen UFOs. One had missing time. I stupidly brought it up at work. <laughs> uh, an- another lady had missing time. She was chased by a UFO with her best friend and her mom. And another lady there also, her whole family saw them. So it, it was pretty upsetting. I wasn't happy, <laughs> uh, but it got me interested for sure. And, uh, I joined MUFON, Mutual UFO Network. I became a field investigator. I took their test. It was really hard. Uh, joined all the UFO groups. Subscribed to the journals. Started buying UFO books. I started interviewing people. Uh, one thing led to another. I was soon out in the fields looking for UFOs myself. And it took a while, but I eventually saw them. So, yeah, I mean, it just kind of grabbed hold of me. And I... It didn't let go. Yeah, it seems it, that seems to be the case in my experience too. As soon as as soon as you almost give permission for people to to talk about it in a way where they feel safe enough, like they're not going to be ridiculed for it, it's amazing how many people all of a sudden open up and start describing experiences that they've had. Uh, I had a similar situation at work where we just kind of brought brought it up. You know, eh, who believes in UFOs? And I probably I don't have a huge team that report to me, but probably <laughs> a third of my team had encounters uh in some form or fashion with seeing something that they could not explain in the sky it was remarkable wow yeah me too about a third of the people i knew <laughs> that's in- incredible so you mentioned you know uh working for you uh for mufon taking their tests and mufon for people that don't know it, it correct me if i'm wrong but isn't it the largest reporting network in the world for ufo encounters Yep, large. Well, there's also New Fork, which I think is compete. Well, not competing, but you know, right there along with them. And but Mufon is the the world's largest citizen UFO research organization. It's got chapters all across the United States, all across the world, and yeah, lots of really good people in Mufon. So, so talk a little bit about that because to become an investigator, you can't just. It's not just a matter of signing up, right? You have to to go through some sort of training, I would imagine, uh, like field training. So, because I, I think the the biggest component, the biggest piece to the success of obviously the moving along the field of UFO research is you know going into it with a skeptical mind, which it sounds like you certainly did, um, and trying to weed out you know the the kind of crazy stuff from these legitimate reports of UFO sightings and and kind of gaining a foothold in in terms of some legitimacy there. So what kind of things do do you get trained to do in order to kind of separate out uh, the the nonsense from, you know, these very legitimate life-changing experiences that people are having? 
Yeah, well, I got involved pretty early on in MUFON. I think 88 is when I actually joined. Uh, and it was a little bit different back then. They didn't hold classes like they do now. You have to take cl- classes to become a field investigator. They basically just sent you a test, and it was a take-home test. <laughs> I thought, well, this should be easy. It's a take-home test. Uh, but there you know, wasn't an internet back then. <laughs> and, and it wasn't easy. Um, the easy part for me was UFO history, you know, his. And they asked a good number of questions on, you know, the Betty and Barney Hill case and other famous UFO events. But there was a section on meteorology, uh, which was difficult. I had taken a lot of classes at college. You know, I was really all into science prior to this, uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons I was so skeptical. Uh, but so that was difficult. But a lot of questions on photography uh, and various subjects. Uh, so, yeah, the test was actually difficult, but I studied hard. I took my time. I think I missed like th- two questions, and one was, a, you know, I made it, I stupidly marked the wrong <laughs> answer. Uh, so, yeah, it was a difficult test, uh, but I appreciated it because it definitely helps in your investigations. You'd be surprised how many people would, you know, see, have not seen a shooting star or something, or, or Venus actually does produce a number of reports. Uh, but by and large, you know, people say, oh, it's a small residue of reports that are unexplained. I don't think it's, that's true. I think it's a, a much larger segment. People are very reluctant to report a UFO unless they're pretty darn sure it's unexplained. Uh, so I found, I mean, there's various ways you go through to verify someone's story. You know, you get character references. Uh, you do a pre-interview a second interview, a third interview, recorded, of course, see if their tr- story changes, and uh, verifying employment if you can, and, and looking for sort of red flags, I guess, you, or markers, which are indicators, details of what's really going on when, say, someone's taken on board a UFO. There's certain details that are fairly consistent, and they're a lot of them are pretty well known now. This subject is bursting into the mainstream. But back then, no, people didn't know what the inside of a UFO looked like. So I could kind of tell right off the bat if they were you know, sincere or not. Another way is pe- people have a very strong emotional reaction. People are very reluctant to speak uh, until they are sure you're not going to ridicule them. And uh, often the first words out of a person's mouth, particularly if they've had a face-to-face encounter or an onboard experiences. I'm not crazy. I have no history of mental illness. I know I don't take drugs. I've got a good job. Uh, and some caveat, you know, saying, no, please, please don't think I'm out of my mind. Um, many of them, I can't tell you how many times people have told me I wish that I was going crazy because the alternative is that this is real. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really tough for some people. So, along with that, though, I would imagine that, I mean, it sounds like there's there's a lot of almost investigative work in, involved in this to kind of, you know, gauge someone's credibility. Um, but I would imagine with, like, technology, and, you know, and obviously you said you started doing this back in the 80s, so you've seen a, a huge shift in, in, in terms of the technology that, not only that science has at its disposal, but also that we, as the average uh, human being has access to now cameras are infinitely better. You know, video recordings are infinitely better. You know, we have 4k versus the grainy, huge, you know, handheld cameras of, of our youth, you know? So 
with that, I'm sure evidence has gotten infinitely better, but is it also harder to, uh, to tell a fake from a legitimate, you know, video footage, for example, uh, than it used to be just because technology is so much better now? Yeah. Yeah. That's a real problem. That's why I kind of like a lot of the older UFO photographs, which were made before Photoshop was easily available on your home computer. <laughs> and I do get people sending me photographs. And un unless someone is willing to stand behind their photograph and give a recorded interview, I am not interested. <laughs> there is a load of fakes out there on the internet. And some of them are easily detectable, but some are very well done. And they're anonymous. And I'm not interested in that because it's far, far too easy to fake. I'm not a photo analyst. Um, I have sent off photos to you know, people who are within MUFON and other people I know. I'm in touch with some doctors. Uh, so, yeah, it's nice having access to people who have you know, expertise in a certain field. Uh, but, yeah, it, I'm, I'm going to say a big yes to the question in terms of photography in particular. Uh, I still love it when someone has a photograph, uh, but what I really like it is when we, we have independent corroboration from people who don't know each other for a, like a single UFO event. For, for example, there was a wave of sightings o over near here where I live in Southern California, and it was a wave of sightings over Topanga Canyon on June 14th, 1992. A bunch of people were calling the police, they were calling the newspaper, and uh, the editor of the local newspaper called me up because I'd written a prior article for him. He's like, see if you can find some witnesses. And boy, did I. I found independent witnesses to this same event. And that was like, okay, this is how I know this is real. Because people from... I had like 30 different witnesses to one single event. It's one of my best verified cases that I've ever worked on. Yeah, and that's uh, that's that's incredible. Um, yeah, and I, I would imagine too that you know if you then if you're getting a, a photograph of, a, of a, a UFO, if you're getting multiple photographs of the same UFO by different people who don't even know each other, that obviously would would tend to help the the credibility factor. I would imagine as well. Yep, yep, and it's clear they're not in cahoots with each other too, because right. uh, <laughs> um, yeah, for that particular incident, uh, I had people come in to me with their stories years after the incident they would like they read my book on it and like oh my god i was there or you know heard an article i'd written for the mufon journal or just you know saw my website and like oh so that's really interesting to me when years later people are still coming out of the woodwork saying oh you know i've got another story for you about that night yeah oh my gosh well, you have a new book, uh, Wondrous, and it's uh, it's fascinating to me because I, I love these case studies, and you've got 25 in there, and some of my personal favorite stories, I think, of UFO encounters um, specifically come from uh, witnesses who I who I kind of feel are just a little bit on a higher level in terms of, of, of credibility, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, I'm talking about, you know, uh, military personnel or, you know, uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, commercial pilot, people who are trained to know the difference between a bird, you know, and, and, and Venus and, uh, you know, an actual aircraft people that, you know, you, you're not going to, you're going to assume that they're not going to, going to make a mistake. Like, like maybe I would, you know, if I saw something up in the sky 
And you've got some incredible stories in this book uh, from from some folks who who were on U.S. Air Force bases. So, uh, talk a little bit about that. You had a construction worker who had who worked at Edwards Air Force Base, and and so what are some of the things that these folks uh, who are military personnel? What are some of the things that they're seeing? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I love it when I'm contacted by a military personnel who is very familiar with aircraft. Uh, actually a trained observer. They've you know, been instructed on how to observe and take notes and they're objective, they're scientifically trained, uh, very well educated. And I've been talked to a number of people within the military and this one guy contacted me uh, and it was basically a deathbed confession. Uh, he was very ill with a chronic disease, not expected to live much longer and wanted to do his part towards disclosure. Uh, so that was like, wow, <laughs> a huge honor. And he mentioned Edwards, and that my ears pricked up immediately because I'd been studying the cluster of sightings and encounters over Edwards for years. I mean, this place is a UFO magnet. It's a very advanced Air Force base. We do a, you know, That's where we broke the sound barrier, Chuck Yeager, the f- f- highest altitude flight. Uh, and it's had clusters of sightings just from 1947 all the way to the present day. And here comes this guy um, contacting me. He says, oh, I was a, you know, a military contractor. And I was called to do work at Edwards Air Force Base. And he told this incredible story. He's walking by this hangar with his employer. And uh, here's this low thrumming noise, which was very unusual. You know, it wasn't your typical engine sound. It was very deep bass and sort of echoing in his chest a little bit. And he's looking around for the source. It was pretty clear it was coming from this hangar, which he was quite close to. And it had, uh, the the window was open. (laughs) And so he looks inside and gets a real shock because inside is what looks like a little sort of Toyota-sized flying saucer. Uh, It was pure kind of chrome silver, uh, shiny. It was floating, though it was attached to cables and had no windows. It was clearly not, you know, a Toyota, (laughs) but it was just about that size. Uh, It was a flying saucer, and he turns to his employer and says, oh my God, what's that? And his employer turns and looks and gets real pale, jams his index finger up to his lips and says, Shh, you know, be quiet. Don't talk. Um, act didn't speak out loud, but made it very clear that uh, not to say another word. And, uh, you know, they walked away from it. And he's like, what was that? What was it? And he's like, no, I'm not talking about it. Don't ask me again. Don't. And so, so he didn't and uh, could not get anything out of him about what this was for over a year until, you know, he did his job, um, went off to, you know, do some other work and was called back by the same employer. He says, I really need you for another job. No one else is available. Please, please come. And the guy in interview is like, no, not doing it unless you told me what I saw. And he's, he's the guy I interviewed. It's like, what? well, we got into sort of a, you know, a joking pissing contest <laughs> Uh, and uh, oh, had a few beers over lunch, and um, finally convinced him to tell you know spill the beans. And he says, "Fine, you can't tell anyone, but what that was was not a flying saucer. That was not an alien craft. 
but it wasn't, in fact, reverse-engineered from extraterrestrial technology. It was part of what we used to call the Star Wars program, uh, you know, back in the Reagan era. And uh, he said that this was a craft that actually used counter-rotating magnets to sort of create a field outside the craft which would propel it in that direction, sort of a void or a gravitational, not a black hole, but along those lines. And uh, yeah, it was powered that way, <laughs> not using fossil fuels like pretty much every other aircraft we have. This was a genuine reversed engineered craft, uh, which is so interesting to me because this is not the only one story like this coming out of Edwards. But this is a brand new one people haven't heard before. And it you know, sort of corroborates what other people are saying about what's going on at Edwards Air Force Base. Wow. So wh why do you think, do you, I mean, obviously this, this gentleman, you know, had this story that he had, had kept his entire life. And he knows that his, his time you know, on Earth is, is coming to, a, to an end. And so he you know, wants to unload the secret that he's kept. Is that... Uh, is that kind of your sense of why we're starting to hear more of these stories come out? It's that that generation is kind of, you know, getting to the point where there's nothing to lose at this point. Like, I, I just need to, to unload these secrets. Um, or is it just because it's too big of a secret to keep anymore? And, you know, the thing's starting to crack a little bit and some of the stuff is starting to come out. What is your sense in terms of why we're studying, starting to see I wouldn't call it maybe a full disclosure, but at least an acknowledgement, you know, that these things are here and that we're seeing something and we're not crazy. Yeah, yeah, I think it's both those things and more. I think there's multiple factors that are sort of pushing what I'll call the secret government, uh, the military industrial complex, the high, high levels of the military who do have access to this technology and do know about the UFO situation. I think... We've had a lot of whistleblowers, and there are a lot of people who are you know, reaching the end of their life and know how truly important this you know, information is, and don't care if they get prosecuted. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, I'm on my deathbed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, also, a lot of people are whistleblowing because if the government does come after them, well, that just calls attention to this phenomena and basically verifies it. So they're getting off scot-free. Uh, the government is not going to come after them because uh, it, all it would say is, oh, you were right, this is real. And uh, yeah, people, I think a lot of people brave, bravely came forward, you know, as much younger uh, individuals because they knew how important this information was. So I think that's definitely one of the things. But like you mentioned, uh, this cover-up uh, while it has been somewhat effective, it hasn't been completely effective. It's like a dam, right? They've dammed up all the information, and it has sprung a thousand leaks. And now this dam is actually breaking, and the flood is coming. It's, it's here. We are now flooded with whistleblower accounts. Uh, so the information is just pouring out right now because it is... We're neck deep involved in this. The military is a neck deep. It's not just sightings. It's not just landings. It's not just onboard experiences. 
Uh, there are crashes. There's reverse engineering. We are actively engaging ETs in a diplomatic fashion. Uh, so there is a lot, lot going on behind the scenes that stuff like, you know, these, these type of accounts we're getting are somewhat minor even. There's a lot of pressure from the UFO investigative community um, who are, you know, using the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, to get documents released. There's a lot of pressure from the experiencer community. A lot of people are having sightings. One in 40, one in 50 people have been taken on board, according to you know, surveys. So this is a widespread phenomena. And there's another front that you know, I'm not sure people are completely aware of, but that's the ETs themselves, who are conducting what amounts to a vigorous publicity campaign announcing their presence in a way that's you know, not completely in your face, just enough. So they're not like landing on the White House lawn, but they've overflew the Capitol <laughs> twice. They are doing flyovers over major city centers, or somewhat major. I mean, like the Phoenix Lights, we had the Gulf Freeze Wave, the Hudson Valley Wave. Topanga Canyon wave, that's another good example. They'll sometimes pick a small community outside of a large city center. And that's exactly what happened in 1992 over the Santa Monica Mountains when hundreds of people saw UFOs, and a lot of them. So this is what I think is you know, very much a part of their agenda to announce their presence in a pretty, not I don't want to call it covert, but... Uh, just enough where it doesn't cause like huge uh, collapse in economy and business and religion and all of this, uh, but still makes it very clear to a large number of people that we are here, we are here. And I think uh, the third thing is, uh, or the fourth, or is that this phenomenon is escalating. It is on a sort of maybe not geometric, but sort of, certainly an arithmetic curve upwards. MUFON and NUFORC, the National UFO Reporting Center, get m more reports every single year. This is a phenomenon that's not going away. It is escalating. So it's now reached a saturation point. You cannot cover this up. And I think this is what's forcing disclosure. Our government has to disclose or they will lose complete control of the subject. They're not doing it voluntarily. They're doing it because they have to. They have no choice. Is, is that partly why, you know, for example, you know, obviously the Navy uh, primarily has been the one that's we've, we've seen this footage come out. Uh, taking my Navy pilots, and the Navy has acknowledged, yes, these objects are real. We don't know what they are. We don't know what their purpose is, that sort of thing. But, you know, the Air Force has been largely silent this entire time. And I'm sure, you know, if the Navy has been studying these things, the Air Force obviously has been as well, but has not really said anything publicly to this point. Uh, is, is that your sense is, is because the, you know, like, for example, the Navy was essentially their hand was forced by virtue of the fact that this footage was leaked. And so they, they really had no choice. Right. So, yeah. So what, what is your sense in terms of, uh, uh, of that? It, because it kind of does seem like they're reluctantly now starting to slowly acknowledge, like, we haven't gotten to the point yet where they're like, these are beings from another planet. You know, we've kind of gotten this kind of, well, we don't know what, what it is, but they're real, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, they know what it is. I mean, I'll start right there. That is completely <laughs> disingenuous. They've known since the early 1940s. They know. Uh, for them to say, oh, we, it could be Chinese, it could be Russian, you know, it's something, we don't know, it might be otherworldly. No, they know it's extraterrestrial. Uh, and the Navy came first. You know, th we had ships long before we had planes. So the Navy is sort of where all trails lead. Uh, they are the ones who are basically in control, very high levels of the Navy, of what's going on here. So uh, I think that's why they're the ones who are sort of directing this disclosure, this drip, drip, drip disclosure. Uh, and I think that's why it's co coming there first. Uh, but it's really quite annoying. I mean, I'm really glad to see movement of any kind because when I got involved in this field, there was 1986, there was rumors of disclosure right from the beginning. It never happened. And right. there's been no, nothing. There's been nothing from any government body. Another factor here is our government is highly compartmentalized. The FBI does its thing, and the CIA does its thing, the NSA does its thing. Um, and there's you know, limited cooperation between all the intelligence agency, agencies and the, you know, the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy probably communicate a little better, but still, no, they are separate organizations. So that's kind of... Uh, another reason I think we're, we're, they're having difficulty rolling this out. Uh, there's a, a lot of factors, I think, going into this that make it very difficult for disclosure. It's tightly, tightly controlled. That's clear. I think there's the old guard and the new guard. Um, there's you know, sort of infighting. I think some people are like, this has to be released. And others say, no, no, no. So for them to say, okay, let's let pilot talk. Let's let pilots talk about what they're seeing. Let's show some footage. Let's release a few pilot testimonies. You know, maybe we'll give we'll sh we'll release a piece of metal because <laughs> uh, the they did say the Pentagon flat out or you know Pentagon insiders whistleblowers said we have material from otherworldly vehicles. Direct quote. That's Whoa. huge. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's disingenuous. I'm going to use that word again because they've known from the beginning this is extraterrestrial. They have the craft. They have the Roswell craft. They have the Aztec craft, the Aurora crash, you know, in Paradise Valley, Arizona. Uh, there's the Kecksburg UFO incident in 1965. Something crashed there, and I don't think it was a Russian satellite. Uh, there are hundreds of according to the people who you know specialize in ufo crash retrievals i i am not one of them but i've certainly kept up and i've written you know i wrote ufos over california and then new york and then i covered a bunch of the southwestern states i was shocked <laughs> to find out that every single state i covered uh all had ufo crashes they all did there's hundreds of these things this is how neck deep we are <laughs> and this is why I think, like, I'm very glad to see movement of any kind, but if they show us more blurry photos and a piece of metal and say, oh, we don't know what it is, we think it might be X, ex no, they're not, we, mm, you know, a lot of mealy-mouthed hand-wringing, I'm going to be pretty upset with it because they know. They know, we know they know. Right. I think, and, and to your point, you know, I, I get just as frustrated with it, uh, 
you know, I think it just in terms of we've seen requests for freedom of information, uh, you know, releases of, of documents and it's always the same kind of thing, right? Where they claim, you know, it's a national security risk. And so half of it is redacted and you can't read the important parts anyway. And so we know that there's this, this release of documents that's coming. Uh, by the time this podcast episode comes out, technically speaking, the deadline would be up. Uh, and I, I don't know, a lot of people are really excited about it. And I'm just, I just can't get excited about it just because I've seen not on this level before, obviously, but I've seen this happen before where, you know, finally they, you know, reluctantly release this, this, uh, this, these documents and half of it's worthless and it's, you know, it's very, you know, watered down. And, uh, I, I just don't see the government, even when their hand is forced, uh, releasing anything that's just earth shaking. Do you, or like, how, how do you, how are you feeling about this, this upcoming deadline here? Yeah, I think some people are going to find this earth shaking. <laughs> so the skeptics in particular are going, mm. it's, this is going to rock some people's worlds. Uh, for sure. I am not so sure that people who are steeped in you know, the government cover-up and have been researching it for decades are going to learn anything that's you know, fantastically new. But they might. Uh, and yeah, these documents that have been released through the Freedom of Information, Freedom of Information Act are some completely blacked out. I mean, not even a word. Government cover-up is no joke. It's demonstrable. It's not speculation. We know it's true. We've had three open official government studies. Uh, there's been many, many, many behind the scenes. I mean, this is something they take very seriously at high levels. But in terms of open to the public, we've had Project Blue Book, which Jalen Hynek was in part of it, you know, Captain uh, Edward J. Ruppelt and several others who have all come out and said, well, you know, that's not, it was basically a cover-up. The real studies were going on at much higher levels, and it was a way, it was a publicity uh, tool to handle the incoming reports. We've had uh, the Condon Committee. Uh, we had the Robertson Panel. And these guys spent millions of dollars, you know, if you adjust for inflation, certainly, many millions to basically say there's nothing to it. There's nothing, nothing, nothing to it. There's no pay dirt, and it's no threat to national security. So for 70 years, they've been lying, flat out lying, and saying there's nothing to it. And they know. They know there's something to it. And now, you know, it's a complete reversal. Oh, there's something to it, and it's a threat. You know, they keep using this word. It's threat, threat, threat. And I'm like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> what about Project Blue Book? No threat. Robinson, not a threat. Not a threat. So they're spinning it. And I don't trust them. I'm sorry. I just don't. Your history, you guys uh, have been lying for so long. I don't see how we're supposed to take you seriously on this. And I do think they're going to spin it. And I think the end game for disclosure is really releasing the Roswell craft, showing us the alien bodies, showing us the footage that was developed by Gordon Cooper at Edwards Air Force Base when a UFO landed on the runway and was filmed. Shows the footage that was allegedly taken, again, I'll just point to Edwards, of the Eisenhower meeting with ETs, 
which may sound like science fiction, but if you look into it, it's not. Uh, it started out as you know secondhand reports and has moved up to firsthand reports, and there's multiple corroboration of a diplomatic meeting between ETs and President Eisenhower. And it's not the only one. It took place at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico and in other bases across the U.S., and for that matter, I'm sure there are identical incidents all over the world, and you know, certainly the major countries. So our government has painted themselves into a corner through their greed and corruption. They have made their own bed and are now having to lie in it and try to build a way out of it. Uh, this is going to open up a can of worms. Uh, and until we have that craft available to the scientific community and the public, uh, disclosure is going to be an ongoing process. And I expect what we're going to get is some mostly, you know, documents that are about pilot sightings and so on and relatively recent. I doubt they're going to dig into some of these famous classic cases. They might. They might just show us a piece of metal and say, you know, we got this. This came from an incident and we, we don't know what it is. And that's what I'm kind of hoping for, a real step, you know, a big step. Something that's like, okay, this solidifies it. And what I really want them to say is no backpedaling. It is extraterrestrial, period. And if they can do that, then I'll be happy. But anything less than that, I think it's going to be completely a lie, disingenuous. Uh, at some point, this will come out. It will. Uh, and I think, yeah, the main real driver in this disclosure is the ETs. Because they, they could end this cover-up tomorrow, right now, very easily. And I think the government knows this. They have, I've talked to a number of contactees. I mean, a number of hundreds. And this, is, this was the message during the Eisenhower meeting. Uh, they wanted to disclose. So if our government doesn't disclose, the ETs will. And that's why I think, ultimately, that's the real driver behind this. So that's why, that's why I'm kind of encouraged. Um, I think we will get some good stuff, but I doubt they're going to, you know, I'm, on their hand, I'm not sure they're going to say that word, alien. Yeah. I hope they do. I really hope they do. Well, it's like they can't even say UFO. You know, they had to change the name because of the connotation that had developed over a period of decades with the word U or the term UFO. They They couldn't even... <laughs> Acknowledge that no. UFOs are real. They're like, well, UFOs, I don't know, but UAPs are real. It's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's exactly unidentified aerial phenomena. Wait a second. How is that different? Let's, let's call it what it is, extraterrestrial craft. And when someone says UFO, that's what they mean. They don't mean anything <laughs> flying in the sky. Um, people are like, oh, I saw a UFO. Basically, they're saying it's an alien craft. And I think if you look at the evidence, which is mountainous, uh, that is the easy conclusion. Uh, by far, the majority of people who have had an experience come to that conclusion. There's all sorts of, oh, you know, time travelers, interdimensional beings, demonic, you know, they're right. angelic, fallen angels, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but if you look at the radar return cases, if you look at the landing trace cases, if you look at the implant removal cases, if you look at the physiological evidence, people have been burned or healed. Uh, 
the evidence for this is absolutely conclusive and it's in the public arena you have to gather it and sift through a lot of disinformation and but it's there there's no doubt that we've got enough anyone who does their homework and is objective about it uh, can only come to the conclusion that this is a real phenomena and it's not us I think that's what's going to push it forward, right? Isn't that really, it's this evidence that this indisputable evidence that is coming forward, uh, it's coming to the surface. Like, for example, just the, I think it was maybe a Thursday or Friday of this week, we saw this uh, footage of um, uh, Navy radar, I think it was, where there you hear the radar operator or whoever the technician was sitting there recounting the speeds at which this object is going, that in conventional aircraft you know the pilot would have been turned into pudding like this is and, <laughs> and yet and yet we're still sitting here having this debate and i'm not one to jump immediately into aliens myself but like if we're acknowledging that this craft is making maneuvers you know like these right angle turns while going thousands upon thousands of miles an hour you know mock speeds that our craft can't even begin to you know accelerate to what? How are we still, you know, having this debate on whether it's a uh, top secret drone? You know, that's 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 a that's a leap in technology that would be unprecedented in in history. You know, we're not talking about going from like a conventional jet to a stealth aircraft. This is completely different propulsion systems, right? This is we're talking anti gravity technology at this point. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree, and that's why. <laughs> I'm puzzled as why it's taken so long. Um, I think there are reasons for the cover-up, and ultimately it does come down to money and greed and power. Uh, there are people who are, have this technology, and if it was to be released, well, the gasoline, <laughs> you know, oil industry uh, would no longer be making billions of dollars in profits. And if this technology of, you know, healing technology uh, were released, there's a very strong medical theme that runs through onboard UFO encounters. People are physically examined, they're healed. I've got 300 documented cases. I'm one of the leading researchers on this particular aspect of, you know, physiological effects. And government whistleblowers are coming out now saying, we have some of this healing technology that can cure tumors and zip up cuts just like star trek can you imagine if that was released boy that would change things overnight and the medical business which should not be a business cancer should not be a business that is awful uh so that's another thing i mean this there are people within power the insurance industry the banking industry the fda the insurance all these guys uh the oil industry, are working really hard. This is not purely military. It's a military-industrial complex. Uh, and Eisenhower warned against it. Uh, General MacArthur, you know, people in the know have warned against you know, the power grab that has gone on here. Because we do have elected leaders who are sort of, we think, quote, running the country. But no, it's really the military who's running the country. So we're in a sticky situation. It's pretty volatile right now. Uh, I think this is a government of the people, for the people, by the people. But also it's a little bit of an illusion because uh, it's so tightly controlled. 
and we're being lied to and been lied to for so long. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see people um, yeah, it, waking up to the levels of corruption that we're dealing with uh, and the inequality of wealth. That can't go on. I'm really hoping that people, that we, we, we have a sea change, a major shift in how this world is being run. Uh, and I think that's what the ET's agenda has been. Because when someone's taken on board, yeah, it's all about being physically examined, right? That's, that's what most people report. But beyond that, you know, if you don't have a strong fear reaction, you won't be knocked out. <laughs> you won't come away, you know, oh, this was traumatic. I was physically examined. They probed me. But, and that's all I remember. Uh, people who don't have a strong fear reaction are given freedom of movement and incredible amounts of information. I've talked to a lot of people who've had really extensive experiences on board UFOs. And this is where I've focused my research. And I can tell you that it's very consistent. This is why I don't think the Greys are bad at all. I think they have our best interests, generally speaking. Uh, I'm not going to say everyone's encounter is benevolent. Uh, because they're, it's not, they're not. There's a bell curve. By and large, yeah, people are given wonderful messages, which essentially fall into one category, which is warnings about what are you, what are you doing with nuclear proliferation? What are you doing with the, your warlike ways? Pollution. You know, you're destroying your environment. This is their number one message. And number two would be, you know, alternative energy. Why are you using fossil fuels? There are so many sources of energies. Here's how we do it over and over and over again. And this is quite common. People are taken to the engine room, told how the craft works. They're taken to the control room, the helm, and sat in the chair. So this is how we fly the craft. Would you like to try? I've taught, over and over again, I've talked to people who've had this experience. And thirdly, and this is super important and often is not talked about, certainly not enough in my opinion, is the very strong spiritual aspect to this. Uh, this is probably another major ET agenda, is to wake us up to our own spiritual abilities. And by that I mean the ability to do healing, uh, to ha uh, have free cognition, past life recall, <laughs> Uh, astral travel, out-of-body experiences, all this stuff. It's a general rule. People who have onboard experiences are profoundly psychic and have paranormal experiences across the board. And that isn't getting the kind of attention I think it deserves because, again, this points to who these guys are, why are they here, are they dangerous, you know, what's their agenda. We've got a good handle on their agenda. No, they're not a threat. If they were a threat, do you think we would be sitting here now? <laughs> we would be on their dinner plate. And, and that's not what's happening. So to call it a threat is a, a, a little bit ludicrous. I'm not going to say they're all our space brothers. Talk to people who are really unhappy. They've had some pretty scary experiences and it hasn't been good for them. But by and large, I'm going to say 80 to 90% say it's been fantastic, or not fantastic, it can start out very scary, uh, but th those who've really worked hard to recover their memories, 
start having fully conscious contact, and they will tell you that this is good for us. And I think this is not just me saying this. This is most major researchers who've really dug into this aspect. And I'll point to Barbara Lamb in particular. Um, she's probably one of the leaders into you know onboard UFO encounters. And uh, we've talked many times, and we found exactly the same thing. <laughs> so I'm very encouraged. Thank you for listening to From the Void. Check out Preston's new book, Wondrous, 25 True UFO Encounters. And if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you have a second, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. To stay up to date, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at From the Void Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with part two. And until then, this has been John Williamson, your host. Thank you for listening.